We're in a series all about identity, and a sub-series within that is how to be beloved children of God, how to be those who are, who are loved by God, essentially. And a lot of people struggle with being loved in general because of past hurt and trauma and experiences and the way you view yourself and the, the, the things you project onto people. We have trouble being loved. And so I'm, I'm going to pivot from last week's message, and this isn't necessarily going to be about how to be loved, but a lot of Christians don't know how to be loved by God, and they don't know how to love people because they don't even know the definition of real love. They don't have an accurate view of what love is supposed to be. We've been sold a lie by the culture. We've been sold a lie by the world. And so we've been raised to think about love so wrongly, so improperly, and we have all these misconceptions that we bring into this concept of love, and then we project that onto God, and it's, it's us who have a wrong understanding of what love is, and then we say God should if he loves, and it's because we've been trained to believe a lie. Not completely. There are some aspects of love that the culture holds to and the world holds to that might ring true to scripture, but in, in totality, the concept of love that's, that we're told uh, to, to believe in and we're raised to, to, to think about, it's not biblical. And so when we try to be loved by God, when we try to walk in love, it doesn't work. We don't know how to because we don't even understand what love really truly looks like uh, biblically. And so we've been, you know, tracking through this series about we're beloved, we're, we're those who are loved by God, we are actually loved of the Father, beloved, that means we are people who are deeply loved by God, we're esteemed by Him, we're favored by Him, we're chosen by Him, we're dear ones of God. We have a personal, intimate experience of God's love um, that, that the, the unbelieving world does not have. We are in the love of God. So we are beloved, but the problem is, you can have all that available and still not walk in the fullness of what God's made available to you because you have never stopped to ask, what is love? I know there's a song that comes to mind. I'm, I'm really holding back. I'm exercising self-control to not sing that. <laughs> but there's a lot of things that you're going to learn today. And I, I don't say that arrogantly. I say that because I learned a lot in this study. I was just going through everything that I, I saw in scripture relating to the love of God, and I was shocked. I honestly was shocked at how many dimensions there are to the profound love of God. So what we're going to look at is today the love of God all throughout scripture. Now, I'm not at all going to claim that this is going to be an exhaustive teaching and you're going to master the love of God. I'm just going to help you as best as I can, and I know the Spirit of God will fill in the gaps to help you understand the profound, divine, never-ending, eternal love of God and what that means for us. And so you're going to see in Scripture that there's a lot of things God does because He loves. So you're going to quickly find out that love, as explained in Scripture, is very clearly portrayed as action. It is an action word, not an emotional feeling not something that wells up in my heart only, or not just something I feel sometimes. It's not, we've romanticized this concept of love and made it purely romantic at sometimes on some level, you know, and that's just not the way love is, you know, portrayed and defined in scripture. Love, you know, between a husband and a wife, and uh, there's all these different ways love can be expressed and these ways love can be uh, between two or even a group of people, okay? So, there are ways that love will differ in different contexts in different groups, but the way God loves is by doing something. And so I'm just going to tell you everything up front that, that, that God's love does 
that I've found, and this is again not an exhaustive teaching, like, hey guys, I've I've 50 things God's love does, and there's nothing else. This is these are the main things I've seen in scripture. When I come across when I do Bible study, what I do topically is I look for the love and then I, I begin to categorize and go, whoa, this has to do with salvation. This has to do with forgiveness. This has to do with like it despite us and not because of us. So you're going to see that God's love, God loves by saving. God loves by forgiving. God loves by caring and giving justice. God loves by defending. Uh, God loves by blessing. God loves by correcting and training and exposing. God loves by revealing and giving understanding like we'll see with Daniel. God loves by comforting. God loves by sparing from disaster. God loves by transforming and purifying. And, and then you're going to see some characteristics of God's love, not just what his love does and effectively accomplishes, but some characteristics of God's love. Like go to 1 Corinthians 13. We can, okay, but also God's love is everlasting. God's love is enduring. God's love is faithful. And I say God's love because, frankly, I have to differentiate between what you think love is, what the culture has told you love is, and what God's love actually is. So I can say, you know, because God is love in 1 John, that God is enduring and faithful, you know, that, that his love is enduring and faithful. But I want to differentiate between what you've been told love is and what love actually is. God's love is enduring and faithful. God's love is sacrificial and self-giving. God's love is reliable and dependable. God's love initiates and actually duplicates itself in his people. Um, God's love, you know, actually chooses uniquely. And then we'll look at the characteristics in 1 Corinthians 13. So I've given you a roadmap of where we're going. Um, and, I, and I hope this really blesses you and helps you. Um, because this, I was going through this and I thought, whoa. You never truly should get to a point where you think you've mastered the love of God. That would be an arrogant claim. That would be a false claim. And that's frankly not true ever. You're never going to master the love of God, at least this side of heaven. I don't know what heaven's going to be like in terms of what we understand and what we comprehend. But this side of heaven, I, I don't move on from the love of God. Actually, scripture says we should grow up in the love of God. You don't master his love and then move on to more profound, supernatural things. The love of God is central to everything. And I mean everything that is true of your life, that is going to be done through you, that God's going to accomplish with you, that God has done for you. God's love for you is at the center of it all. And of course, you could say his glory alongside that because he's glorified in the way that he loves you. But let's get to it. Nonetheless, God loves us. And I, and I hope that this redeems. That, that's my heart behind this. I hope this redeems your concept of love and gives you a clear understanding of what God's love really looks like. So you can walk in that, so you can enjoy it, so you can really delight in that, so you can praise God for it, so you can you know, fall on your knees every day in a profound awe of who he is and what he's done for you and grow in your understanding of his love. That's my encouragement. This should not at all be a masterclass where you get a certificate at the end and you sign your name and go, I mastered his love. This should be something that propels you and motivates you into wanting to know his love more, into seeking to know his love more, into desiring to understand the profound divine love of God. That This should give you the hunger to say, I want to know this great love because there's no way you're going to master it. Ephesians tells us it's incomprehensible. And yet, in the same, you know, breath, he'll say, but it's knowable. In other words, you can't fully understand the complete totality of God's love, but you can comprehend the love of God on whatever level he chooses to help you understand. 
And so the love of God, as you're going to see in scripture, God loves by saving. This is found in Deuteronomy 4, because I know you guys are uh, loving scripture, and you should. You should wait. You should say, preacher, let's get to some scripture. But that's just the, the groundwork that needs to be laid, so that when I walk you through these scriptures, you have an understanding of what we're doing and where we're going, and why these specific passages stood out to me. Because trust me, I had to filter through near hundreds of passages. That's a lot. Deuteronomy 4.37. And this is not the very first instance of God's love. This is the first explicit statement about God loving um, uniquely set-apart people. Deuteronomy 4.37, it says, And because he loved your fathers, that's God, because he chose their offspring after them, and he brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore, know therefore today. And let me, I apologize because what's happening here is the scripture is not showing up. So what I need to do is this. Bada bing. It's going to freak out for a minute. Don't be scared. Okay, now you can see Deuteronomy 4.37. We're in verse 39. Know therefore today, lay it to your heart, that the Lord is God. In heaven above and on the earth beneath, there is no other. So the way that God makes it clear, I am the only true and living God, there's no one besides me, and here's what I've done for you, is he prefaces it by saying, it's because I loved you. Now, I believe this is Moses talking, reminding the people of Israel why God does what he does. Why did he save you? Why did he bring you out of Egypt, even though you you wouldn't let go of your idols? Why did he bring you out by his great power? Why did he split the Red Sea? Because he loved you. And you might ask, why did God choose to love them? Because he's chosen to love them. That's the very simple answer. And this is not some uh, random, arbitrary love of God. This is very precise and intentional and it's purposed and it's, it's, there's, there's, there's reason. But here we see God loves because he loved your fathers and he chose. You're going to see a lot in these passages that there's a, a difference. And I clap because I'm excited. <laughs> there's a difference between God loving his chosen people and God loving the unbelieving world. Because we read John 3.16 and we're going to get to this in next week. Next week, I'm going to show you in Scripture the difference between God loving His children and how that's different between, uh, from how He loves the world. But here, it, you're already starting to see that kind of work itself out. That God chooses, and then God loves, and God saves. So why does God save? Because He loves. Why did God love? Because He just chose to, man. And again, this is not some arbitrary decision. This is calculated. This is intentional. This is with purpose. This is to reach more. Psalm 1850, same idea. Great salvation he brings to his king, and he shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. So notice, showing steadfast love to his what? To his anointed. You might say to his chosen one. Highlight. Highlight. What are you doing? There you go. He's showing steadfast love to his anointed. How? By bringing great salvation. Now, in the Old Testament... We can look back in hindsight and go, ah, the main salvation God brings is from sin, from death, from darkness, from the devil, from eternal damnation, from all that. But from their perspective and from their vantage point, the psalmist is writing the main form of salvation, okay? 
that he's thinking of is salvation from the temporary physical enemies that surround him. It's protection and salvation from the enemy nations, from losing in battle, from being conquered by, you know, pagan kings. That's the main idea of salvation. But what we see in, the, in this, in these versions of salvation, you might say, is a foreshadowing of the ultimate spiritual salvation Jesus will bring. But notice, God saves because he loves. So how does God express his love towards his anointed, his chosen? By saving them. By saving them. That is one of the greatest, and I would say the ultimate way God expresses his profound love is by saving his chosen. So it goes like this. God loves enough to make it possible for one to be chosen, talking new covenant believers. And then when you are chosen through your faith in the Son, you are now a part of the chosen people of God through your faith. Now God says, for my chosen people, I have salvation. And you see this typified in the Old Testament. This is hinted at over and over and over. In Psalm 44, 26, it says, Rise up, come to our help, and redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love redeeming something, purchasing, repurposing something, bringing something back and making it your own possession is a type of saving. But he says, for the sake of your steadfast love, do it. That's interesting. So why would God choose to help and redeem? Well, because he loves. (laughs) Psalm 85 verse 7, same idea. And I don't think I have to prove this anymore, but it's, it's awesome to just look at all these different passages that will communicate it a little differently because each of these passages will resonate with each of you differently. Psalm 85, 7, it says, Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. There's a desire on the part of the psalmist to, to see and know the steadfast love of God. In what way? In God granting them salvation or granting him salvation. But he says us So the psalmist goes, grant us your salvation. In other words, save us. Save us from our enemies. Save us from from death and leaving the land of the living. Save us from being conquered. Save us from the pagan kings and enemy nations. Save us, O God. And that is what the psalmist says is the Lord showing his steadfast love. You're going to see a lot of times God's love is referred to as his steadfast love. You're going to see a lot of times his love is characterized as being faithful, committed, loyal, enduring, and steadfast. Now we get to the New Testament, Revelation chapter 1, and this is probably where we'll move on to the next portion of God's love. But Revelation 1, it says uh, that, that, you know, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of the kings on the earth, to him who loves us. Do you notice that? To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. So the ultimate freedom, the ultimate salvation and redemption is to be freed from sin by the precious blood of Jesus. He's made us a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In each of those passages that I brought up, there are several elements that you'll see there they all have in common. There is God liberating, saving, redeeming. There's that aspect. There's God 
choosing or someone being chosen or a group of people being chosen or anointed. And then there's this, there's this, this talk of God being glorified in that. That's how God, that's one of the ways God is glorified and honored. His name is, is made much of is through the way he chooses to love people and the way we respond to that love and the effective results of those love, of that love. Okay, so what you're going to see also as we move on is that God loves by forgiving mercifully. And this is connected to salvation and redemption and, and being delivered um, is that part of our New Testament, New Covenant salvation in Christ is that there is forgiveness for sin. And we've had so many conversations on what it means to be forgiven in Christ. But Isaiah 38, 17, it says, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love, you've delivered my life. So you see this concept of being saved, rescued, redeemed, okay? You've delivered my life from the pit of destruction. Now, you might be inclined to think this is just someone whose life, physical, temporary life here on earth, it was saved. It was saved from death. But notice what he says after. He explains himself. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. So whatever it means for God to deliver the life of this person or this group of people, I don't know who specific, it might be Hezekiah speaking here if I'm not mistaken, maybe not. It, it is Hezekiah, praise God, I was right. Hezekiah is speaking here and going, yeah, you delivered my life. And part of that, okay, is this casting all sins behind God's back. Now Hezekiah's life was lengthened. And so that's why I said you might be inclined to think this is just temporary life. God did extend his temporary life. But Hezekiah did end well, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Could be wrong. He kind of fell into pride. This seems to be his repentance, and I believe he ended well. Um, And so whatever this casting of sins, it's forgiveness. It's God having mercy on Hezekiah's sin and not allowing his sin to bring him into the pit of destruction. And this, I believe, from the way I've read this, it transcends just temporary physical salvation but it goes into the actual Hezekiah's sins were forgiven so that if he did die when he does everyone's gonna die he'd actually be able to enter into the presence of God because God had mercy on him so I I just want to show you whether that's true or not doesn't really matter the point is that being delivered here is connected to having sins forgiven maybe that's a necessary condition for Hezekiah's life to be lengthened Maybe that's a part of the package deal. Maybe this is spiritual and actually refers to eternal life. But the point here is that there is a connection between uh, salvation and forgiveness, and it's an expression of God loving. So people go, prove to me God loves me. One of the greatest ways God has proven his love, we'll see in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, is that he demonstrates his love and that while we were still sinners, he died for us, meaning he saves. He makes provision for salvation. He makes it possible for you to have redemption and salvation in his son's name. Hands down the greatest expression of his love. And then from there, everything God does, because we're his children now, right, is a continuation of that love. Or you might say a deeper, more profound expression of that love in him blessing, in him, you know, giving us access to his son's inheritance and all these different things. So salvation seems to be a part of the package deal when it comes to being a child of God. Is that you're saying, 
I want to be on your side. And God goes, cool. I've chosen you now because your faith in me, I've chosen you. This is the responsiveness of God's love. We respond to his love and what he's made provision for, he grants us through our faith. You didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. You didn't labor for it. God gives it as a free gift. But nonetheless, it is made possible through Jesus and you believing extends it to you. So now you have this salvation package. You're a child of God. And part of that is that God goes, I've chosen to save you. From what? Mainly from sin and death and what results from that. Psalm 51, David made a, David made a boo-boo. He says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your what? Notice what the focus is here. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. All these different ways of saying, I'm guilty of sin. And I can do nothing about it. I can't do enough good to outweigh the bad. I can't erase the bad I've done by seeking to be a morally good person. I can't even meet my own standard of morality. I need God to wash me and cleanse me of my own spiritual evil. This is the psalmist's heart. But he doesn't appeal to his own worthiness. The psalmist doesn't appeal to his own performance and obedience. Well, here's why you should. He appeals to the love of God here. Have mercy on me. Why? Why would you think God would have mercy on you? Because it's according to his steadfast love. It's not according to my obedience and my performance and how much I know and how well I've done. It's according to his love. This always seems to be the heart of someone seeking repentance and forgiveness. Is that they appeal to this one thing. That not only is Christ sufficient and he's made provision, but God is loving. And that's the only reason he would ever save. So God's saving and wiping out sin, those two things seem to come together And it's the expression of God's love. So you might say, how does God love? The main way is that he looks upon you and even makes it possible for your sins to be forgiven. For the spiritual evil that taints your soul and separates you from God and that spiritual disease called sin. He makes it possible for you to be cleansed of it. And he invites you to come and let him wash you. And part of that is him saving you from the death and the eternal separation your sin deserves. This is the main way that God expresses and proves his love to his people. It's powerful once you get it. Another thing to know about the love of God in scripture is that we'll just use Israel as an example. And I believe this becomes just a case study for why it is that God loves and how he loves. This is what the Lord says to the nation of Israel. He says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And he's speaking through Moses. Moses is speaking on behalf of God. So that's why at times he'll refer to, you know, God did this. He says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession. What I'm going to do is highlight anything that is unique about the nation of Israel, and then I'm going to uh, connect it to the love of God. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, he chose you, he treasures you, he made you holy. Now, if you're the people of Israel hearing this, you can get puffed up. 
you can start to widen your chest and go, that's right, and start to stand above people and exalt yourself and get an inflated ego and feel prideful. And Moses shuts that down so fast. He goes, it wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you. I highlight this in purple. And he chose you. In other words, Moses is removing any any, uh, thought, any reason to think that God chose to love me because I'm, it has nothing to do with you, Israel. This has nothing to do with what you brought to the table and how inherently worthy you are. It has nothing to do with that. He set his love on you and chose you, not because you were more in number and there was more possibility and potential. You were actually the fewest of all the peoples. It's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. That's why the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. That's why he's redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So someone might be tempted to take this a little too far and say, God doesn't love you. It has nothing to do with you. No, he does love you. You are the object of his love. I just want to make it clear, you're not the reason for his love. You are the one who gets to receive his love and be a beneficiary of his love. And you are the object of his powerful love. But you are not the reason he was motivated to choose to love you. I don't, I don't bring any reason to the table to go, Lord, here's why you love me. X, Y, and Z. Here's how much I served in church. Here's how much I know about the Bible. Here's how many Bible studies I've led. Here's how holy I've been. Here's how many addictions I've broken. Here's how, much, here's how long I've gone without looking at pornography. Here's, here's my resume for why you should love me. That doesn't work. There's no reason I can personally give God of myself to love me. And Israel is a case study for this. That, hey, Israel, it has, there's no reason on paper why God should have chosen to love you. There's no reason. From a worldly perspective, from an eternal perspective, from from the angel's perspective, there's nothing about you that would make God think they're worthy and deserving of my love. But they are objects of his love. And they are beneficiaries of that love. We, in the same token, have to see God's love like this. That God loves not because of me, but actually despite what I bring to the table. It's not because of any good I bring. It's actually despite all the bad that I bring that he chooses to look upon me me mercifully and say, even though you don't have any inherent reason to deserve my love, you're not entitled to my love, I'm going to give it anyway. That's the whole point of grace. That is the whole point of it being a gift. Undeserved, unearned, and you could never earn it. You could never deserve it. You could never be entitled to it. You could never be worthy of God's love. And if God waited for that to happen, we would never actually get to have his love. So God, in his grace, chooses to give you and I what we do not deserve. And he tells Israel, it's because I'm keeping an oath that I swore to your fathers. Israel, time and time again, gives God, from our perspective, we think, 
they give God reason after reason for him to just abandon them, give up, move on, pick another nation. They don't give him any reason to keep loving them. If anything, they give God a reason to not stick around. And yet he does. Over and over, this faithful, enduring, constant love of God is flowing towards them with new opportunities, with new mercy. And you go, why? Because he is faithful to the promise that he made to their fathers. So when we pivot and transition to the New Testament, and we are in Christ, every promise given to the patriarchs, every promise given by God to the fathers of our faith, every promise that God has given is fulfilled in Christ. Meaning, all the promises of God are yes and amen, because Jesus fulfills the necessary conditions for those promises to be effectively realized. So God keeps his, his word, that's who he is. But mainly the oath, the promises, are about Christ. He is the fulfillment and the substance of all the promises of God. So if you are in Christ, well now it's as if the same is true of you. God is going to be faithful to his son. And he's made a promise about those who will trust in his son. And because God made a promise... The reason God loves you differently than the way he loves the world is because you are now in his son and all the promises of God apply to you. So now God loves you because he's true to himself, he's true to his word, and he's true to his son. And this doesn't mean that you, God doesn't enjoy loving you or God doesn't love you as a person. You are you. Everything you are that you bring to the table, God chooses to love. And we're going to explain what that means. But it's because of his son that we have this unique experience of being loved by God. So know this, that God does love us because we're in his son. And it is different from the world. But it's because of his word, his promise, his character, and his son's faithfulness that this love towards us will never be removed. It's because of his son. It's because we're positioned, grafted in Jesus spiritually through faith. And that won't change. So does God always love you? Absolutely. Is God always pleased with your way of life? Does God always is God always honored by the way that I'm conducting myself and interacting with people and talking? No. But oh man, I want to change that, right? That's what the love of God should do. If you look at this magnificent love and go, finally, can live however I want. If you see his love as an excuse to sin, you have a lot more seeking to do. Because that just tells me you don't understand his love. Because his love would motivate obedience and holiness. Not an abuse of his grace. Not a motivation to sin. So not only does God love by saving and forgiving, God also loves by giving justice and caring for people. Now I'm just going to give you one verse for this. It says, he executes justice for the fatherless and for the widow. And he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. What is the way in this context that God expresses love for people? God shows his love by providing what we need, doesn't he? Does God need to give us what we need each and every day? He has no obligation to do so. And I am not entitled to his provision. I'm not entitled to his care. I don't deserve it. This is why Jesus will say he gives 
You know, he lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust. This is an expression of God's love for humanity, is that he provides for their needs, provides what they, what they need each day so they have an opportunity to choose him and come to him in faith. And he executes justice. And this is the way that he loves the, so, the, soldier, the, the stranger, the widow, the fatherless, by providing and giving justice. There's coming a day where ultimate justice is coming. We look around the world and go, where is he? Where's the justice I read about? Where's the justice I know is true of my father? Where is it? And Revelation gives us insight into the fact that there's coming a day when the justice that God has been really waiting to fully release on the, on the world and humanity in judgment, it's going to come. And all the wrongs will be made right. And all the rights will be rewarded. Justice is coming. And that's going to be an expression of his love. And we as the people of God will... There's no word to capture how excited we'll be that God will release ultimate justice on his enemies and on humanity and those who are his people so that all the wrongs are made right and all the rights are rewarded and the people of God alongside Christ are reigning in the new creation. There's no way to capture the excitement we're going to have when we see that. God loves by defending and blessing. You have a man named Balaam who ends up being called a seer. It's also called a prophet of God in Deuteronomy and Numbers. And Balaam, he's hired by King Balak, who is the king of Moab. And he's hired to go and curse this nation of Israel that King Balak's like, dang, they're pretty powerful. If they get stronger and bigger, I'm screwed. Who else thinks like that? King of Egypt. So Balaam ends up coming and goes, what's up? And Balak goes, curse these people. See how many they are? They're going to come again. They're going to destroy me. And Balaam goes, okay, I'll talk to God about it. And God goes, mm-mm. I'm not, they can't, they're cursed. They're not cursed. They're blessed. I can't curse them. I've chosen to bless them. So this is what it says when they're recalling that event where God refused to curse the people. And eventually what Balaam does in him and Balak's scheme to lead the nation of Israel to bring the curse upon themselves. So if God won't curse them, they can actually do something that would bring the curse upon themselves. But the Lord your God wouldn't listen to Balaam. Instead, right, when Balaam is sent by Balak to curse the nation, instead the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing. Because the Lord your God, what? He loved you. If this is not the ultimate example of the gospel in terms of Jesus taking our curse upon himself and that being the means by which blessing can come into our life, I don't know what is. That is such a good example. That is a fantastic illustration of how Jesus takes our curse upon himself. And by doing so, that becomes the gateway into us having access to his blessing. This is what God does. He takes what the enemy meant for evil, he takes that curse, and he turns it into a blessing. This is what God does for his people over and over and over, and you can read the New Testament and find that we also fit this description. God does this for us. It's expression of his what? Of his love. So how does God love in this context? 
any curse brought down on his people, he intends to make it a blessing upon them. Turn that evil into good. He works all things together for the good of his people. God is a defense. He's a shield. He's a, he's a stronghold. He's a refuge to his people. That assumes you're taking refuge in him to experience the safety and security that comes from God. In other words, we talked about this earlier, two episodes ago, how the love of God is portrayed as a shelter. And you're like, I don't know how to, that's so weird. I can't run to love. That's not something I can take, you know, shelter behind. I don't know how you do that. It's actually just that you trust in the love of God as your ultimate sense of confidence in life, security against the enemy. When you die, you'll be raised to life because he loves you. So it becomes something you build your life on, the fact that God loves me. God loves me. You live like he loves you. You know his love better. You actually find a sense of safety and security and peace in the fact that he loves you. And that's why it's communicated as a shelter because you're going to go through storms and you need something strong to take refuge behind or in. Also, what you'll see is God loves by correcting and exposing and training, which the word that'll be used is reproving reproving or discipline. (laughs) Reproving. For the Lord reproves, such a hard word for me to say. Do I have a speech impediment? For the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. So there's this aspect of delighting and loving that's actually proven by this reproving or correcting. And you and I go, I don't like being corrected. Are you out of your mind? How's that proof of God's love? Because if God lets you continue going down a road that he knows will destroy you and harm you and hurt you and and just, you know, leave you wishing God would have spared you, that's not God's, that's not love. Love intends to, if there's someone who's driving off a cliff and you see it, but they don't because they have a different vantage point, and you just go, you wave as they drive by, and then you go your merry way, that's the opposite of love. You let someone destroy themselves. You let someone hurt themselves. So God, in his love, will actually stand in front of the car, take the hit to spare someone's life, and go, turn the other way. That's the idea of love that gets neglected in culture. In a month that's all about about inclusivity and acceptance and approving of my lifestyle and I want to feel all these different things. In a month that's all about wrongly defining inclusivity and wrongly defining acceptance and approval. We need to hear this. Love doesn't leave someone in what is killing them. Now I can't force someone to come out. I can't pull someone out of the fire all the time. But I can warn them. This is what discipline often looks like. I'm warning you. What you're doing is destroying your life. I'm warning you. This sin is killing you. I'm warning you. You're headed for destruction. I'm warning you. You are not righteous without Christ. You're heading straight for eternal separation from God. I'm warning you. Love warns. Love defends. Love protects. Love is not always coddling. The love of God is expressed a lot of times in his discipline. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. Is that a hard word for us to hear in this culture? Is that a hard word for us to hear in this snowflake generation? Absolutely. But it's true nonetheless. 
that love does not always enable. We'll give them chances. I'll, I'll, I'll let them know what's going on in a few weeks. Once I, Sometimes there's wisdom in knowing how to present correction and waiting for the opportune time. But when it's been years and over and over, you delay it, you delay it, I'll wait till it's the right time. I don't know if you're operating in the fullest kind of love for that person. I'll tell them about the gospel when I have a chance. You've known them for 10 years. Not once have you mentioned the gospel and how dead they are in sin. Not once. You haven't even eased into it. So while there is wisdom, you can't use that as an, as an excuse. Well, it has to be timely, brother. They have to be receptive and open. Sure, have you even figured out if they're open to it? Have you figured out if they're open to the gospel? If they're open to learning the fact that they're heading straight for eternal destruction? Have you even tried? If not... I'll tell you, you're not consistent with the love of God because God's love does discipline. That means consequences for sure if we're wrong, but that's the only way that we typically define discipline is, well, it's when someone does something wrong and then I spank them when it's my own child. When it's another adult, that's probably not something you should do. But there's consequences for, for, for bad decisions, right? That's the only thing we think of when we think of discipline. Discipline is training. When you go to the gym and you work out, you're disciplining your body to actually lift more to actually handle more, to endure more, to stay there longer, right? It's training, it's correction, it's rearing the right direction. That's discipline. And God does that because he loves us. Hmm? So if you say, ah, I'm loving this person by enabling them to sin, by keeping them in a false sense of security when they're heading straight for a cliff, that's love. I know there's wisdom and timeliness to this. I know there's making sure... But you can't always use that as an excuse to get out of the fact that God is calling you to correct and actually tell someone you're believing a lie. That's actually not true. How many of us nod our heads when we know someone's giving a bla- believing a blatant lie about, about God or spirituality or faith and we just go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You don't, you're not going to correct that? There are some things that it's like, listen, buddy, now you're just like, yeah, you're like over, what's it called? Overcorrecting. <laughs> like you're obsessed. You're looking for something to correct. Like tone it down, buddy. We all know those people. And we don't want to be those people. So I understand that you can be overly critical and obsess over the small. It's like, bro, they just misspoke. Give them a break. But when someone is going, like, let's say I'm, I'm in a Bible study with a bunch of believers. And we all go to the same church. And someone goes, yeah, um. I think the best part about my faith is that uh, just that like sin isn't an issue. Like I love that I can just keep doing bad stuff because like I'm forgiven or, you know, I love that everyone's going to heaven because God is universal and it's like, he'll, he'll make a way. He'll meet people where they are. He, he won't actually judge anyone. He, there won't be consequences for sin. And you're going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're not going to address that. You're not going to speak up and stand on the truth. That's not love. This is fatherly discipline, of course. There are certain people, there's going to be degrees, concentric circles of of training and discipline and correction. But, nonetheless, that's not an excuse to never ever lovingly expose someone's lies that they're believing. Mark 10.21, here's a great example. Jesus looking at the rich young ruler, thinking that he's actually kept all the commands of God. He's in delusion, man. The rich young ruler is, a, is in a place in his life 
where he really thinks he's kept all the commands Jesus listed. He's in delusion. And Jesus looks at him and loves him. This is the key. He loves him. And he he goes, you have, buddy. Have a good day. God bless you. He doesn't say that. He loves him. And because of that, he says, you still lack one thing. Leave him alone, Jesus. That's mean. You don't tell someone they're deficient. You don't point out someone's weakness. You don't point out what someone's lacking. That's offensive. There are people around. He has a reputation. Jesus, don't give a crap. You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have. Give to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Rich young ruler couldn't do it. Jesus exposes lovingly what the rich young ruler is actually lacking. That's love. Sometimes that is the greatest way to love someone is by saying, yeah, I hear you. But without Jesus, you lack eternal life. I know you think you're a morally good person. I know you think you're better than freaking Hitler. Who isn't? But your own standard isn't the measurement for heaven. So I love you enough to expose the lie you're believing and say you lack one thing. Jesus. Revelation 3.19, it says, Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. This is Jesus presenting an opportunity for the church in Laodicea to repent. That's the love of God, is to present someone an opportunity to change. But if God secretly leaves humanity a chance to be saved and he never tells us how, and then we stand before him and we go, what the heck, man? Like, Not that anyone's going to approach God like that, but in your heart you're going, we didn't even know about this. And God's going, I made, I, I, it was an opportunity. It was there. Figure it out. That's not love. So God doesn't just make the provision for salvation. He tells us how to be saved. And then Jesus tells the church of Laodicea how to get back on the right track. And it seems like repenting, turning from, changing your mind about something is involved here. This discipline. Take notes, parents. Take notes, teachers. Take notes, those in authority. Love is not always nodding for the sake of not creating tension. Love is not always, well, I'm just not trying to create a really tense atmosphere, so I'm just going to agree with the lies. Love is not always coddling someone and what, what's killing them and the, the delusion they're, they're in. That's not love. And I know people are tuning out, but if you look at the love of God and you're doing the opposite, you can't say you're loving people. At least in that moment where you let them live in that delusion and destruction. Pooey! Didn't know it would get this hard. Another way that God loves is by revealing and giving understanding. Not just by correcting and exposing and training, by revealing. I saw this when I was reading Daniel and I thought, dang, Daniel, you get some cool stuff revealed to you. Terrifying. I'd crap my pants, but you, good for you, man. Like, God really loves you. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, this is the angel coming to Daniel, because he didn't understand the vision he saw. And he goes, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out from God, and I have to come and tell it to you. 
for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. In other words, a word went out from God for Daniel to have understanding. This angel comes and he obeys the the command of God to come and bring understanding and help Daniel to see what's going on. And because God loves him, this is, this is the key. Because God loves Daniel, he gives him understanding. We see this with Joseph. We see this with um, Daniel again when he stands before King Nebuchadnezzar. We see this with, well, several people. This is not the only expression of God's love, but man, knowing facts is, is great. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. But it's not helpful without understanding. You can know what the Bible says about A, B, and C, and you can memorize all the scriptures. Do you understand? This is where I believe is the difference between a believer and an unbeliever reading the Bible. Unbelievers go, I understand the data. I understand the point. I understand the facts. I understand the cultural relevance. I understand the original audience. It's like, yes, you understand the facts, but bro, it's going... Straight over your soul. Not over your head. You get it with your head. Intellectually, you're there. You get it. But with your heart, you couldn't be farther. Your spirit has no understanding because your spirit's dead. So there's no possibility of understanding without being a believer and understanding the gospel, believing the gospel first. It's almost like this. I've come to understand the degrees to which we understand scripture like this. We, as people are separated from God without Jesus. When you believe the gospel, right? You see Jesus for who he is and you believe. There's that heart level understanding of the gospel, okay? So when you believe, that now is you walking through the door to understanding everything else you see in scripture, in the world, and in your life. Understanding comes through believing the gospel. It becomes the lens through which you see the world. Now, Daniel is given the understanding by God because he's greatly loved. In other words, this is proof. This is evidence of God loving Daniel. This is an expression of God loving. And I love this because, man, we need understanding. Not just knowledge, not just the data. We need deep, heart-level understanding on how to walk that out, apply it, the, the, the reasoning behind it, the logistics behind it, why God does what he does, the, the, the kind of information that transforms a life. For the unbeliever, they read the Bible and it just stops here. And they informationally, philosophically, archaeologically, however else you qualify, the way they've mastered in their mind the Bible, they've done that, but boy don't understand because they don't like glory to God so they don't fear God they don't believe in his son so the spirit of God is now within them to interpret the truth to give them understanding because they've rejected the gospel which is the entry point into understanding everything else Daniel 10 11 this, happened mul- this happens multiple times by the way And he said to me, Oh, Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words I spoke to you. Stand upright, for now I've been sent to you. Daniel, again, doesn't understand what he sees, doesn't understand what's going on. So you have another angel, I think it's the same one, comes to Daniel and goes, Oh, God loves you so much. You are greatly loved. And Daniel's going, Sweet. So what? He goes, Well, I've come to give you understanding. 
the understanding is here. Because God loves, he reveals, he gives understanding to the people who are frankly positioned to want it, to receive it, to understand by the Spirit of God. We're going to get to the fact that God's love comforts and strengthens, that God loves by sparing from disaster, which is another form of saying saving. But before we do, quick break. If you've not already done this, go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have a bunch of free resources that are made available to anyone around the world, completely free and accessible to anyone who wants to learn how to read the Bible. We have free online Bible study courses that will teach you how to read the Bible. We have free study devotionals that walk you through specific patterns and keywords in the book of Ephesians. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have Bible study workshops. We have all this free content because of generous supporters like you guys. And if you want to support this ministry, we're teaching people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And there are a bunch of ways to donate. You can go to abovereproachministry.com slash donate. You can give through debit or credit card. You can send a check to P.O. Box 338, uh, Green Cove Springs. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon. And then you can also get some church merch. If you've not already grabbed some church merch, I would recommend you do that so you can represent Jesus on your body. And all the proceeds go right back into this content so that we can reach more people and equip people to, you know, live and teach the Bible themselves. And if you didn't know this, I actually have a book. I've published a book. It's called Fruitful. And the point of this book is to be a resource to the church to teach people um, the essential keys for the most abundant Christian life this side of heaven. And so in this book, what I do is I, I outline the gospel absolutely clearly <laughs> so you can actually know what the foundational truth is. And then from there, we discover what our purpose is, what our process is, and what our position is now in Christ. So if you are a new believer, or if you're a believer that really wants to understand what I believe are the essential key truths that a lot of people don't understand in the church, I would grab a copy. And if you haven't already joined our online church, get in that online church. We have a lot of cool stuff happening, events every single day, pretty much. Uh, we're in there praying and fellowshipping and gathering and growing together as a community. And the last thing is this. If you haven't already checked out our podcast, uh, we have podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and everywhere else where you can get a podcast. And pretty much all the content on YouTube, the live streams, what we do is we um, make that into podcast format so you guys can just listen on the go. So go check that out if you have not already. And let's get back to the video. Okie dokie. God loves by comforting and strengthening. We actually see this in Daniel ten nineteen a few verses later. It says this. The angel, I believe. He said, oh, man, greatly loved. Daniel is called this quite a bit. We should probably pay attention to that. He says, Oh man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. In other words, God sent this angel to provide strength and good courage in the form of peace and hope. So God strengthens his people. That's an expression of the way that God loves us is by strengthening, giving us hope to keep going, giving us the peace in the midst of absolute chaos. 2 Thessalonians 2.16, it says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts, may he establish them in every good work and word. So God loves how does he love? What, in what way does he express that love? By giving eternal comfort. 
Think about this. Eternal comfort. That means no beginning, no end. Different than everlasting. Eternal comfort. And he gives good hope through his grace. He comforts. This is the idea. Because God loves, he gives us hope that comforts us. And if you've experienced that, let me know in the chat so I'm not alone. I've experienced that. I've had those moments where the love of God provides hope and comfort and strength to keep going, to have perspective, to change my direction, to, to you know, keep going on. Also, in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, we see that God loves by sparing from disaster. Sparing from disaster. Thank you, James, for the super chat. Jonah 4, 2, it says this. And this is what Jonah says. This is really sad. You can see Jonah's heart is not aligned with God's. He prays to the Lord, oh Lord, isn't this why? Isn't this what I said when I was in my country? Because he's in Nineveh now, he's preached the, the good news. That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious God. I knew that you were merciful. I knew you were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. We serve a God who wants to save people. The problem is not everyone wants to be saved, do they? We see this with Noah. We see this with Sodom and Gomorrah. We see this with Israel. We see this with Babylon. We see this all over the place. Not everyone wants to be saved. Oh, but we have a God who so longs for human beings to be saved. We don't serve a God who delights in punishing. We don't serve a God who delights in executing justice in terms of giving the penalty and separating from eternity. God doesn't delight in condemning the wicked. Contrary to popular belief, he does not. While it's consistent with who he is and he is just, there is no delight in condemning the wicked. He desires that all men, all women would be saved. And that's an expression of his love. That's actually what we'll see in John 3.16 next week when we differentiate between the love of God for his people and the love of God for the world at large. Also, we'll see that God's love is transformative. Meaning, when you encounter the love of God, you will not be the same. It is not possible. It is not possible. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So you go, why is God rich in mercy? Why why does God choose to love? What's the expression of his love here? Well, it's that while you were still dead, while I was still dead in sin, he looked on us, a sinner separated from God, a child of the devil, dead spiritually, having no inherent value to come into the kingdom. And God looks at that blob of sin and darkness, an enemy of his, and he goes, I'm going to love you by making provision for salvation and calling you and inviting you into my family, right? And then when you come in, he makes you alive. That's what the love of God does. It's it's not just that he's calling you to something. It's that he's calling you to be changed and become something new. That's the love of God. It's transformative. It has the power to change the, 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 the core of who you are. The love of God changes your heart, your DNA spiritually, your nature, your, your desires. Changes you 
fundamentally to the core from the inside out this is the love of God the love of God does not uh, keep you the same meaning a lot of people want to emphasize the fact that well, God loves you as you are but he loves you way too much to let you stay as you are meaning the love of God should drive and motivate me into the best life God has for me it should propel me into all that God has for me right if you stay the same all across your Christian life nothing changes your desires don't change your heart for God never never is there conviction of sin never is there desire to love people never there like I'm just wondering have you really encountered the profound love of God because his kindness leads us to repentance and his love will change you change you from the inside out not just spiritually but on a practical everyday kind of level God's love is also everlasting so I'm going to shift now we've talked about what God's love does now I want to talk about what God's love is so here are more characteristics of God's love not just so what, what are some things he does with his love what are some some ways the love of God is expressed now here's what God, God's love is. It's everlasting. Isaiah 54, 8 through 10, it says, In overflowing anger for a moment, the Lord says, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. It says the Lord, your Redeemer. And then it goes on to talk about what that looks like. You know, in the days of Noah, just like the days of Noah, um, this is like the days of Noah. As I swore the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, I've sworn that I will not be angry with you. I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart, the hills will be removed. This is hyperbolic language. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed. Says the Lord who has compassion on you. So notice, God has compassion and God loves specifically by loving perfectly, fully, and forever. Jeremiah 31 verse 3, we have the same idea. It says, the Lord appeared to him from far away uh, when Israel sought for rest. He says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've continued my faithfulness to you. God's faithfulness is never in question. God's commitment to you is never in question. God's, you might say, loyalty to his people is never in question. It's always ours. Part of the way God loves, this is, this is, this is exactly why I said we have to detach from what you've been trained and taught to think about love. We have to detach from the culture's idea of love and look at this objectively and pretend you have no concept of love and let God teach you what love is. Come with an open heart and open hands and say, I'm gonna, it's as if I know nothing about love. Lord, teach me. Redefine what I think love is. Help me to understand love appropriately. And one of the things that you'll learn is that God's love is committed and loyal and faithful and unchanging. That is very different than the rest of the world's concept of love. Lamentations 2, 3, will say a very similar thing. 
the steadfast love of the Lord, it never ceases. Is this not good news? This is fantastic freaking news. The steadfast, faithful, loyal, committed, enduring love of God never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. Is that good news that the love of God never stops? There's no no possibility of God changing his mind about those who are in his son and trust in him and look to him. There's no darkness in God. There's no potential for him to stop loving. The love of God is enduring and faithful and loyal and committed. That's part of the reason that I hold to the version of eternal security that I do. Or once sealed, always sealed, right? Psalm 136 shows us the enduring love of God. Give thanks to the Lord. Why? Why should I thank God? My life's a wreck. I don't even know if I have bills paid tomorrow. My wife just left me. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Meaning, this has nothing to do with your condition of life and the circumstances that you're in. For you to thank God, you don't look to life to give you a reason. What you look at is who God is and what he's done for you. His steadfast love endures forever. That's why I can thank God in every circumstance. Because in the highs, in the lows, in the sucky parts of life, when I'm abounding, in all of it, and when depression kicks in and I don't even know if I'll make it through tomorrow, or when I'm just feeling high on life, his love is enduring all the time. In this very moment, I'm just as loved as I will, will be tomorrow. In every moment, it's the same. His love is faithful Part of the faithfulness of God's love is it's not conditioned upon your obedience or sin as if it goes up or down. That's the good news about this. We've been taught that love is like a roller coaster. Now, you never know who's going to leave you, who's going to abandon you, who's going to love you. You might just lose the reason that they love you if you don't perform well or give them what they want, right? we've We've been trained to think love is conditioned upon what I can bring people. It's based on what I can do. It's based on how I can keep them around. It's based on how I can profit and benefit people. And God goes, nope. Nope. He goes, my love is the opposite of that. It has nothing to do with what you can bring to the table. It's not based on your potential or what I see I can do with you. Hmm, I see you have some wisdom. It's nothing to do with that. God's love for you is disconnected from how gifted you are from how much you can produce, for how well you're evangelizing and how many people you're bringing into the kingdom, it's disconnected from that. His love endures. Ezra 9.9, for we are slaves, this is when they're post-exile, coming into the the nation of Israel, or specifically Judah, Jerusalem. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but he's extended to us his steadfast love before the king of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of God to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. So one of the ways God loves his people here is by bringing them out, not forsaking them, not leaving them where they are, right? But by faithfully loving them and sticking it out, waiting for their sins to be punished to the full. So he's right there waiting to extend his love to them again as a new generation arises, just like we see in the wilderness. Romans 8, 36, it says, As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Yet, 
question becomes, shall tribulation or distress or anything separate us from the love of Christ? Even though this is happening, can anything separate us from the love of God? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Another way of saying it is it's through his love for us that we conquer. I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Notice how Paul's focus is the love of God. He goes, here's why I'm safe. He loves me. Here's why I can face death. He loves me. Here's why, even if we're being killed all the day long and life is a living hell at times, he loves me nonetheless. It's true. And I'm going to see the full expression of that in the redemption, in the resurrection, when I have glorified body and I'm reigning with Christ as a child of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can cut off his love. Nothing can make him stop loving us. Part of that means nothing can make God love us less. The other thing you'll see about God's love is that it is sacrificial and it is self-giving. Which is... You can meditate on that for a million years and you never get to the end of that. It's incredible. That the creator of the universe who owns time, space, and matter, who sustains all things, who relies on nothing outside of himself. And he says the nations are as nothing. They're a drop in a bucket. He laughs at the rulers of the earth that try and come against him. That God that spoke everything you and I see and know as physical reality into existence, that God humbled himself, left his glory. The eternal word emanating from the Father took on flesh, came into the womb of a woman, subjected himself to human frailty and sickness and sleep and exhaustion and tiredness and and hunger and thirst and even temptation, and he obeyed to the point of death on a cross. At the hands of his own creation, the people that he was sustaining, their breath, he let them wrongfully condemn him to the cross. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God. And what did he do? He loved me and he gave himself for me. There was a great exchange that took place. His life for ours. And he gave up his so we could have the life we have now. Jesus gives himself over to death, over to rebels, over to the cross, over to the will of the Father. He lays himself down for the sake of love. Ephesians 5, 2, it says, Be imitators of God. Walk in love as Christ loved us. Oh, what did Jesus do? Well, he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the love of God expressed ultimately. The greatest demonstration and display of God's love through his son. Laying down his life. When he could could have summoned legions of angels, could have shut the whole thing down, could have ended everything. 
and instead he endured through it. He stayed on the cross till it was finished. That's a clear picture of the enduring love God has for us. Is he'll wait it out until it's finished. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. There's that self-giving. There's that laying down oneself. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers too. Shouldn't we? Seems to be the natural or the appropriate, rather, response to that. Ephesians 5, same language. There's a call on husbands to love wives as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So remember how I said God's love purifies. God's love cleanses and transforms. Here, here it is. Jesus gives himself for the purpose of washing, cleansing, purifying, sanctifying, so that we could be presented holy and without any blemish. This is the love God has. It's for your and mine good. It's for our benefit that we'd be holy and righteous and blameless in his sight, and that gives God glory. So while love is concerned with the benefit of another, it is ultimately concerned with God's name and his character, his renown being glorified, him being honored. The second to last thing you'll see about God's love is it's reliable and it's dependable. It is not like your parents' love. It is not like your first love in high school. It's not like your spouse's love even. I'm sorry. The love of God transcends that. 1 John 4, 16, it says, So we've come to know and we've come to believe the love God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So look at the language here. We've come to know and to believe. Another translation says rely on the love God has for us. So when you say, I believe in Jesus, what do you believe? Do you believe that he loved you enough to leave his glory, take on human flesh, subject himself to human sickness and frailty and even death on the cross, and he rose three days later, broke out of the grave just because he can, and he conquered death in our place? Is that what you believe? If you go, yes, you've just admitted that you believe in the love of God. Because that's central to the gospel. That's, that's the best way to sum up the entire gospel message. God loves you. While that is a, a, a an, what's it called, um, an oversimplified version of the gospel, and we should elaborate and expand on that, that does accurately sum up the gospel. So we can believe in, we can trust in, we can rely on the love of God throughout the rest of your life. I know your parents hurt you. I know people left you. I know you were backstabbed all throughout high school. I know you have all these perverted ver- illustrations and examples of what you thought love is. I know that. But can you detach from all that and say his love is fundamentally different? Because God is love. That's why. No one else can say they are the essence of love. No one else can say they're the source and the personification of love. So God's love for us is the essence of his being, which means this. It's not just something he does. When God loves, that's not just foreign to his nature. That is exactly who he is. It's a love we can rely on and trust in. It's a love you can build your life on and trust that I can just do what my father says and I know he loves me. And when we live in love, 
when we live in the love of God, we are living in God himself, who is love, and he's living in us. And it's the ultimate expression of the everlasting love of God, is that lastly, his love should be duplicated in us. So God's love initiates. He doesn't wait for you to give him a reason to love you. He doesn't wait for you to give him reason to treasure and value and save your life. You never, and I never, none of us ever could have given him reason. Being image bearers of God is not sufficient reason. 1 John 4, verse 7 says this, Beloved, let's love one another. And we're like, yeah, especially during this month, right? Well, hold on. Love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Love is the proof that you've really come to know God and be born of him. Whoever does not love doesn't know God because God is love. In other words, guess what? You can't truly, biblically love people without knowing God. You can do morally good things. You can express parts of the love God has for people. Um, But to love people truly requires having a relationship with God. Because that love has to be directed not just not just uh, horizontally but vertically, meaning my love towards people has to be unto God as a sacrifice. I truly love people, but it's also because I desire God to be honored and glorified. It's directed towards Him, it's saying thank you for what you've done. This is this is for you and your glory. And I love people because you loved me first, and, and you initiated this relationship. So love the love we have for people and the love we have for God is responsive it's a response to the love God has shown us his love initiates and this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him in other words it's so that you would live that's love is always directed towards full abundant life Meaning, whenever I do something out of love, or treat someone lovingly, or speak out of love, it is towards the goal of giving them abundant life. I want my love to move people into the abundant life God has for them. That seems to be part of what it means for God to love and for us to effectively love. Okay, so God sent his only son in the world that we might live, and this is love. Not that that we've loved God first, but he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is where, yes, God's love initiates and sets the example and makes it possible for us to love. But also, the love of God should be duplicated in us. So God plants his love in us, in essence, by the Spirit of God, so that that love would be replicated in our lives and in other people's lives. Boom boom we should be spreading the love of God that requires you to know him first we love because he first loved us verse 19 says so our love for God is never impressive because it's just the appropriate response to how magnificently he's loved us by saving us by redeeming by forgiving by overlooking all the reasons that he shouldn't love us, right? By caring for us, by giving justice, by defending, by blessing us with every spiritual blessing in his son. 
by correcting us, by training us, by exposing us, by revealing and giving understanding to us, by comforting and strengthening us, by giving us hope, by sparing us from disaster, by transforming and purifying us, by enduring and faithfully loving us with everlasting love that is self-sacrificial and self-giving and it's reliable and dependable. And you can go to 1 Corinthians 13 and you can look at all the different characteristics of God's love or love itself because God is love. And here's what you'd see. He says, If I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Guess what? There's a category for religious, spiritual deeds that lack love. That is a very realistic possibility. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't envy. As I read through this, I want you to think about all the things you've taken away from this message. All the things we've gone through. All the examples of God's love we've seen. Think about what, you know, how to pair these things. What comes to mind? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears, endures all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So when I say that we are beloved of God, we are those who are uniquely, deeply loved by God as as different from the world, as chosen children of God, as those whom God is pleased with because we're in his son and we trust in Jesus for salvation. When I say that we are beloved, we are people who are esteemed and favored and chosen. We're dear ones to God. We have a personal, intimate relationship with God and an experience of his love. We're deeply loved by him. All these ideas should come to mind now when you say, God loves me. It's the action. It's the essence of who he is. It's the substance of God. He he is Love. Now, you can't say love is God, otherwise you start worshiping a concept. What you can say is, my God, he is the essence of love itself. And he loves me. That's your identity. That is who you are now until eternity. This is who you are forever. Forever. Because his love is faithful, enduring, committed, loyal, and everlasting. It's eternal. This is good news for us. This is fantastic news for us. Um, So if you guys didn't already know this, I want you guys to think about these things and meditate on these things as I just transition and close. This is an online ministry. You can check out everything we have at AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have a bunch of free stuff. We have free devotional studies, free online Bible study courses. If you are new to the Bible, if you are frustrated when you try and read the Bible, if you get bored, you're overwhelmed, you get irritated, whatever it is, if you need help learning how to read the Bible, we have a completely free 40-day Bible study course. And if that's too much, we have a 27-day course, an 11-day course. Those are smaller versions of the 40-day course, obviously being less than 40. 
And so if you really want to learn how to read the Bible and go deep at your own pace, you can go to abovereproachministry.com. Just go to free stuff or click free courses right here. Also, it's linked in the description below. And all we have a bunch of free online courses. They're self-paced. They're online devotional studies, Bible study worksheets, all my sermon notes put on there. Uh, check those out. And then if you want to join our online church, it's popping. It's on the app called Discord. We're not sewing Discord. It's what the app is called. You can check out a little bit about our online church. Join YouTube description. We'll give you all these links. Okay. If you want to give to this ministry and make all this possible, uh, we are crowdfunded in that sense. God makes all this possible through generous supporters like you guys. You can mail a check to Green Cove Springs, P.O. Box 338, um, or donate through uh, debit or credit card, or give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon, get some church merch, represent Jesus on your body. I have a wife and two kids in this ministry. Uh, all the free resources we make available to everyone around the world um, cost time, energy, studying, all that kind of fun stuff. And so if you want to partner with us and you see value in what we're doing, you can also get a copy of my book, Fruitful, The Essential Keys to Living I can't. It's behind me. The most abundant, satisfying Christian life this side of heaven. See? There it is. You can get a copy online at aboveapproachministry.com or on Amazon or in the description below. Uh, You can check out our podcast. We have one podcast. We have two podcasts. One is about all these sermons just put on audio. And then the other podcast is for the local church. Um, And pretty much hit everything. I'm sure I missed some stuff, but that's all I have for you guys today. So... You guys, I really want you to just meditate on these things. We have about 25 minutes till the online church gathering on the Discord app. So before then, just pray, seek the Lord, continue meditating on this. Don't leave. If the Lord is doing a work in you, don't bring that to a halt. Um, like really sit with the Lord and let him solidify this even more and uh, teach you and strengthen you. Um, to really understand his his love because we'll see in Ephesians I think next week that it requires strength to know the love of God Um, it requires strength that God supplies us so I think that's all I have for you guys today keep moving towards Jesus and know his love better every day and I'll see you guys uh, Wednesday for our Q&A Lord willing and then in the discord chat if you guys are going to be there alright I'll see you guys later